out of Austin, Texas. You're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. Welcome back. We are reading again. Let's get it to pot down here. Okay, thanks for joining again. We are really getting into this. This is some really great stuff. We are reading from Willful Blindness, How a Network of Narcos, CCP and Tycoons Infiltrated the West, a book by Sam Cooper that's been out for a little bit, but uh, we are reading it so we can tie in relevancy to what's going on with the U.S. southern border with U.S. and Mexico. So last night we learned that the chemical transfer of like fentanyl pills became a, a cheaper alternative to heroin because they were having difficulty getting supply of poppy in China. So they turned to these chemical alternatives like ecstasy and methamphetamine and fentanyl. So that started to emerge in the 2000s. And then it became a huge boom uh, with huge traffic and growth potential for a business in, um, in and around Vancouver. And all made possible through the laundries of money in the Richmond area through these casinos and BC Lottery Corp. So that puts us current to chapter four, and that brings us to the mission in Hong Kong. So I'd like to begin now. It's getting pretty good. This is the mission in Hong Kong. But at least one more enormous pan of the scope is needed to track the full circle in relations between the triads and China's rulers and the present consequences for the West. In the early 1990s, Gary Clement made friends with a Macau police officer who introduced him to the less-traveled regions of Stanley Ho's casinos. It was something like a set of Russian nesting dolls. The cavernous gambling rooms packed with tourists were merely facades enveloping multiple layers of darker business tucked deeper inside the glittering buildings. When Clement walked down the quiet hallways and passed the restricted gambling partitions rented out to the Sun Yi on the triad... He could almost feel the eyes of the men posted on the doorways stabbing at him. Clement was the RCMP liaison officer in Canada's Hong Kong Commission. He'd been, he'd been in Hong Kong long enough to know Sun Ye On was a ruthlessly efficient organization. If the order came down, some thug with a meat cleaver would ritualistically, ritualistically administer a thousand slashes to the person who pissed off the triad Dragonhead. It was in the private VIP baccarat rooms, just one or two little betting tables, but decorated in palatial style, where Sociedad de Turismo y Diversos de Macau, a corporation of Hong Kong tycoons that held a monopoly on Macau casinos, raked in about two-thirds of its casino revenue. Clement knew that the tycoons, including Stanley Ho and Cheng Yu Tung, dealt with the triad so that the junket operators laundering funds for the Chinese narcos could lend cash to the Asian whales who bet ridiculous sums in the Macau casinos 
some of them losing tens of millions in, a, in single nights of debauchery. And the decadence didn't end there. Clements McCall police source also walked in past the fishbowls, glass-walled rooms where scantily clad girls were displayed like delicacies on a tray, waiting patiently to be selected and led into private rooms in the underground regions of the casino. Clement knew that the triads, tycoons, People's Liberation Army, princelings, and corrupt Communist Party officials had had long-standing and mutually beneficial arrangements in Macau, and that Stanley Ho brokered incredible power amongst them. Ho was tall and dapper of Eurasian ancestry with a taste for ballroom dancing, championed racehorses, and beautiful young women. He was very tight with the leaders of North Korea, Iran, and China, involved in state-level trade with these authoritarian regimes, and he looked like a statesman himself, chauffeured in Macau, Hong Kong, and Shenzhen in his majestic blue Rolls Royce. But this was Macau in the 1990s. Does it, how does it relate to my investigations into the perfected machine of money laundering that Silver International and the Big Circle Boys constructed in British Columbia? finally exploding into public view in the fall of 2017 with my reports in the Vancouver Sun. Because the, the misery of the opioid death crisis that is racking North America stems from the geography and players that Clement encountered in Macaw and Hong Kong in the early 1990s. He and a handful of ex-Canadian officials know the golden path for men like Paul King Jin, was paved through Canada's Hong Kong embassy. At the time, Clement understood that many of Hong Kong's richest men, the multi-billionaire tycoons who were buying incredible amounts of real estate in Vancouver and Toronto, were tied to the triads. It was rumored among Clement's Hong Kong police sources that some of the tycoons themselves were dragonheads. With the Hong Kong tycoons, it was almost always a rags-to-riches story. Clement told me, a, a journey from Guangdong to Hong Kong as a young man, a job in a factory, and an incredibly shrewd ability to trade in some or other commodities, steel, rubber, gold, arms, heroin, and all of a sudden a fortune magically appearing in real estate, hotels, casinos, banks, and transportation. When Clement discussed the tycoons with British expats from the Hong Kong police, the euphemism was, well, it's fair to say he didn't make his fortune in the traditional way. But there was an irony in that comment for British expats. Really, what was the traditional way? In the 1830s, it was the Scottish gentlemen traders Jardine and Matheson who made their careers exporting tea from China, but made their fortunes importing opium to Guangzhou through Chinese merchants and smugglers and bribing Chinese officials to turn a blind eye. Eventually, the Chinese could not ignore the growing ranks of listless opium addicts in Guangzhou, Hong Kong, and Macau. They moved to seize and destroy whole shipments of opium from the Scottish gentlemen, dumping their black dirt into the Hong Kong Bay and causing Jardine and Matheson to lobby for an armed response from Britain. This, the result was the first opium war in Hong Kong's surrender and colonization a scar on the national psyche that the Communist Party propaganda still refers to as China's 100 years of humiliation to the West. So for my visual way of thinking, to get at the root of Vancouver's money laundering and fentanyl overdose crisis, to understand the Vancouver model of transnational crime, 
was something like Clement's gradual journey of discovery inside Stanley Ho's casinos. You can zoom in on certain times and people and then pull back to a waterframe and let the kaleidoscopic images steer and settle. And when the picture finally clears, you dig deeper and find, end up finding more answers. You finally recognize that a massive dose of history and politics as big as mainland China itself pressurized like a syringe through the needlepoint of Hong Kong and is bursting back at the West right now. Or as RCMP source told me, uh, it's like opium wars, but in reverse. Pick a year and a place. Was the Vancouver model of money laundering birth in 1988 when cartel heavyweights like Kwok Chung Tam first in, landed in Vancouver and then Tam's fellow big circle boy Chi Lop Si arrived in Toronto? Both men arrived as refugees and were quick, quickly recognized by Canadian peace as mid-level drug, drug traffickers. But look where they are now, especially Chi Lop Si. According to a 2019 Reuters investigation, Chi Lapsi is now seen by police worldwide as the Pablo Escobar of methamphetamine in the Golden Triangle, a man who allegedly heads a merged syndicate of Chinese triads conservatively estimated to clear $8 billion per year in meth sales. Another mind-blowing figure, Reuters reported that Chi Lapsi is so enormously rich that he could shrug off a loss, a loss of $66 million in one night in a Macau casino. But if you focus on 1988, you have to zoom further back all the way to China's bloody cultural revolution in the year 1967 when overly aggressive members of Chairman Mao's paratrooper Red Guards were purged and detained in Guangzhou. It was in these internment camps that the Red Paratroopers formed a new triad-like society, the Big Circle Gang. And the prisoners eventually escaped to Hong Kong, where they made a violent impression on the original triads that had already fled to Hong Kong and Macau in the 1950s and 60s after losing bloody battles with the Mao and the Communists. But at least one more enormous pan of the scope is needed to track the full circle in relations between triads and China's rulers and the pre-sent consequences for the West. Present. Not present. Present consequences for the West. <laughs> in Canadian federal court records regarding the triad infiltration of Canada's immigration system, the Hong Kong police force's leading triad expert, Stanley Ip, is cited explaining the ancient roots of these secret societies. According to Ip, Governments in China have, to various degrees, confronted the triads since 1647, when leaders from China's Han ethnic groups formed sects to buck the authority of the Manchurian Qing dynasty. And the triads functioned like shadow governments, evolving into powerful criminal societies controlling underground channels of finance and trade, sound familiar, Mexican narcos, and enforcing contracts through guangqi relationships and violence. In the 1900s, secretive relations between the national leaders and criminal leaders continued as Ip says until Mao and the communists firmly gained the upper hand and vanquished the triads. But in the early 1980s, as negotiations progressed between the United Kingdom and China for the handover of Hong Kong, the pragmatic paramount leader Deng Xiaoping had a new arrangement in mind. Before I continue, I need to 
to let you guys know that today, uh, the 9th of June, was the day that the streets filled in Hong Kong with pro-democracy protesters in 2019. Several pictures were floating around on Twitter, and I just wanted to mention it because this is kind of a red-letter day where there was lots of pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong last year. Very prescient. So, <clears throat> moving forward. Gary Clement had always wanted to hear the Mounties' iconic red surge so much that some of his earliest memories were involved in pinning Royal Canadian Mounted Police postcards to his bedroom wall. His, his first RCMP posting was to Langley, a detachment in the Fraser Valley to the east of Vancouver. He quickly caught a promotion to the underground drug unit, a post that would take most officers years longer. Clement was one of the best at cultivating informants and developing criminal intelligence. He mastered the art of creating a persona and casually inserting himself into big drug deals. It was the 1970s before Canada's Charter of Rights came in, and you could gather evidence aggressively to take out big players. In organized crime investigations, you had to be fearless and willing to walk up to the line. And Clement became 100% efficient at doing that, coming into dark rooms with a suitcase of cash, looking at the guys across the table and knowing they were packing guns, making the deal, and walking calmly out with their drugs. Early in his career, he'd learned that anyone could be turned, especially with big narco dollars. His undercover drug unit partner, Patrick Kelly, was very corrupt, so bad that he was jailed for life in 1984 after throwing his wife off of a balcony of a 17th floor apartment in Toronto. Another thing that Clement quickly learned that good cops or good drug cops did the meaningful work, balancing the risk and reward, putting their lives on the line. They spent all their time putting killers in jail. Meanwhile, it was the hotshots in Vancouver commercial crime units who got RCMP promotions. Clement was convinced they spent more of their time getting business degrees than pushing cases through. And no joke, the white-collar crime team in Vancouver headquarters actually had suit-of-the-week contests. In Clement's minds, these guys looked golden because they wouldn't take risks. They stayed away from controversy in politically sensitive files. They were more like politicians and academics than cops. And year after year, they moved up the national force. It was no wonder, he thought, that RCMP was turning into a politicized bureaucracy. Before arriving in Hong Kong, Clement was asked to do a study. The RCMP wanted to know why Canada's commission in Hong Kong was so uncooperative. Clement found that the officers in Toronto and Vancouver said they wouldn't even bother sending information requests to the commission. They knew that staff wouldn't follow up on it. The result? The Hong Kong RCMP liaison office was seen as nothing more than a glorified post office. And this was the posting with jurisdiction all over Hong Kong, Macau, and Southeast Asia. Think about that. Canada's enforcement presence in the area of the world with the most numerous, powerful, and sophisticated transnational drug cartels was zero. So when Clement arrived in the Canadian Commission in 1991, he decided to shake things up. Sumptuous dinners with Hong Kong's white shirt officers and the diplomat were set out. Instead, Clement spent his night ingratiating himself with the inspectors who ran vice ops for the Royal Hong Kong Police. He started to work with the Triad Bureau and the Economic Crime and Anti-Corruption Units. 
After a while, he felt like there was a member of the Hong Kong force. The officers he gained trust with told him they had spent little time with RCMP previously, but his interest in their files was a welcome change. And meanwhile, Clement was learning the secretive power relationships of Hong Kong's government. He realized that to penetrate this insulated ancient culture, he needed a friend and mentor. He found one in an elderly Hong Kong gentleman, the son of one of the original dragons, who started to teach Clement about the enormously wealthy men who ran Hong Kong, Macau, and China. At the same time, a veteran Canadian foreign affairs officer named Brian McAdam was looking for a colleague he, he could trust. McAdam was posted to the Hong Kong Commission in 1989, and as the immigration control officer in a glorified post office, he had quickly become frustrated and isolated. He was a detail-oriented man and a voracious reader and compiler of intelligence, and also a student of Chinese history. Soon after Clement arrived in Hong Kong, he sat down for a long talk with McAdam in his office. Month by month, McAdam increasingly felt something was wrong in the commission. He wrote many intelligence briefs, he told Clement, but his files seemed completely unwelcome to his superiors in Hong Kong and Ottawa. It seemed that there was an immigration fraud ring and Ottawa was, was turning a blind eye. McAdam couldn't understand it because this was after Canada's immigration department had been put on notice in 1975 with the scandal of Louis Locke, an elite Hong Kong police commander and secretly a triad member. Louis had made up to 500 million taking bribes from heroin traffickers, but as Hong Kong corruption investigators closed in, he and his family obtained Canadian visas and fled to Vancouver. The case was so alarming that all Canadian officials handling immigration from Hong Kong and China were put on alert. As a result of the incident, the department issued to all Canadian immigration officers outside of Canada instructions and procedures on the handling of the applications submitted by residents of Hong Kong because of the triad threat, an affidavit filed in Canadian federal court says. And Louis Locke's case had become widely known in Canada. In 1977, McLean's published an expose on Louis and his conspirators, the so-called Five Dragons, titled, Whoever Said Crime Does Not Pay Never Hung Out with a Hong Kong Cop. The story opened with an anecdote about the symbolic greeting that seasoned Royal Hong Kong Police Force officers shared with young officers arriving from Britain. You can jump on the bus, you can roll on, run alongside it, or you can stand in the road and try to stop it. The bus represented bribes flowing throughout Hong Kong's vice districts. The story explained how Louis and four elite officers had escaped a special corruption probe and somehow were allowed to immigrate to Canada after contributing to the opioid crisis ravaging Hong Kong, where 100,000 addicts spent vast sums each day to support their habit. And according to the story, Canadians were outraged by suggestions that some former Hong Kong policemen who emigrated to Vancouver and Toronto had been able to finance the heroin trade with their kickback money. But now, 10 years after the Five Dragons scandal, McAdam told Clement that he was stunned to find elite triad officers appeared to be very friendly with elite staff in Canada's commission. They talked about Hong Kong's immigration chief, Lawrence Leung, 
And there was a strong intelligence that suggested Liung was a member of a triad and also connected to China's military and espionage networks. And McAdam told Clement about Hong Kong steel tycoon seeking a Canadian passport. He was also in a triad. And the billionaire would visit the Canadian Commission and give the staff red envelopes with cash to gamble in his private box at the Hong Kong Jockey Club. McAdam said numerous other tycoons visited the commission while seeking visas for themselves and their families and also lobbying for their associates and their investments. They would take Canadians out for decadent yacht cruises in Hong Kong Bay. Clement told McAdam that he was make or saying, saying made a lot of sense. Already Clement had ruffled feathers in the commission for churning down red envelopes. And this caused a loss of face for some tycoons, an egregious insult in Chinese culture. Clement told McAdam about one quiet standoff in the commission. When Clement was introduced by a Canadian official to Cheng Yutung, the Macau's casino tycoon, Cheng had icily refused to shake Clement's hand and walked away. Clement told McAdam he took it as a badge of honor. They agreed it was impossible for Canadian officials to rub shoulders with the tycoons and not have these powerful men come on, back, come back to collect. The cash gifts were not free. So McAdam and Clement agreed to file unequivocal warnings to Ottawa before another Five Dragons scandal rocked the commission. Wow. What a powerful chapter. As I said before... Kind of a red letter day in Hong Kong in 2019, a couple years ago. Now Hong Kong is definitely underneath the boot of um, extradition treaties and legal extradition um, by the mainland China. So things have changed. And COVID authoritarianism is still kind of rearing its ugly head. So keep that in mind as we continue discussing these these uh the future of these triads in chapter five tomorrow the triads entering canada because they were around apparently so thank you for joining it was kind of a quick chapter tonight um also if you were on substack visit sheilamdean.substack.com and please subscribe i'll leave the link in the comments section much appreciated thanks for joining Oh, and see you at 720 tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access unsanctioned citizen podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio podcasts, and call in. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com.